everybody, and welcome to the Slavic Connection. This is your host, Sergio Glujar. I am joined by my co-host, Misha Simanovsky, and this is the third episode in our series on the ongoing war in Ukraine. Today we are speaking with Mr. Leonid Ragozin. He is a Russian journalist currently based in Latvia. He writes op-eds for Al Jazeera and other publications. He said on his Twitter that he was uh, made in BBC, and I think that he sticks to that sort of neutrality. That invasion of Ukraine taking place in the current form is not just irrational, it's in many ways suicidal for Putin's regime as well as for Russia. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. So, Mr. Ragozin, in your February 24th Al Jazeera article, um, you tried to analyze sort of the rationality or perhaps lack thereof on uh, the part of Mr. Putin in his invasion. And then on the flip side, also analyzing the rationality of Mr. Zelensky in his steadfast resistance. So can you comment a little bit more about sort of the role of rationality in this conflict right now? Right. Well, I'm I'm definitely the person who uh, did not this uh, did not expect this uh, invasion to to happen, at least not in the in this uh, tragic and drastic form. I sort of thought of Putin uh, trying to coerce Ukraine into implementing Minsk agreements and putting this uh, gigantic force on the uh, on the Ukrainian border, anticipating that at the end of the day, the Ukrainian government and the West will sort of. Uh, understand that there is no way they can uh, defend Ukraine against this armada, and eventually, in some shape or form, they will agree to you know, to the Russian version of of Minsk agreements or something in in between the two. And the the reason I thought that way, one major reason why I thought that way, is uh, is that invasion of Ukraine in the taking place in the current form. It's not just irrational; it's in many ways uh, suicidal uh, for Putin's regime as well as um, maybe for, for Russia. In the very least, uh, it is a, a huge, huge gamble for Putin and for his entourage. A gamble that I can only compare to, you know, Russian roulette. Because it's either they win, and um, I don't quite see how they win, or how can they win in, in the way they want to win, or they essentially perish as a regime and I'm less sure about the country but uh, yes there is a great chance that, that this uh, war can have a, a massive massive impact uh, on on the future of russia itself uh, so so that's that's uh, putin's part of the gamble on on zelensky what i said in that article was that history will show whether uh, zelensky was right to in this uh, game of chicken to collide with uh, Putin rather than, um, you know, swerve away and, and, and try to, to avoid this collision uh, and um, save people, save the, the cities from destruction and uh, instead try to advance Ukrainian interests in, in some other way through, through, uh, through peaceful means. So again, the history will judge whether whether Zelensky was right or wrong to to do what he has done and to 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 accept this fight, to put up this fight. But uh, one thing that should be said, and I think it is very clear now from day one of this invasion, is that he he was acting on behalf of the Ukrainian people, 
uh, basically his his decision to put up a fight was was supported uh, by uh, at least a relative majority of, of Ukrainian people, and uh, the, the way the Ukrainians are reacting to to the invasion speaks for itself. I, I think nobody has done uh, so much harm to uh, Russia's uh, actual interests in Ukraine uh, and to the future of Russophones uh, in Ukraine. Uh, to the future of Russian language in, in places like Dnipro or Kharkiv or Donetsk. Nobody has done so much harm to it as says Vladimir Putin. First by um, invading Crimea and Donbass in 2014, but there was nothing compared to what is happening now. I mean, now it's, uh, it's basically the end of Russian influence, uh, any role Russia could play in the future of Ukraine unless uh, it, it is continuous as, as, a, as an occupation, uh, which, which I, I don't find quite as a, as a, as a feasible eventuality. Well, and, and as you've pointed out uh, elsewhere recently, it's really shocking to see the Russian destruction of Eastern Ukrainian Russian-speaking cities. Uh, yes, well, it is, it is shocking. I mean, if, if we go through, the, if, we, if we follow Putin's own logic, he wrote in this famous article back last summer, uh, that Russians and Ukrainians are one people, and uh, and he uh, he pretends he he tries to present himself as the protector of uh, Russian speakers of Russophones in Ukraine. Well, now he is attacking Russian-speaking cities, cities where majority of the population, or as uh, someone from Volnavakha, as a small town which was completely obliterated in recent fighting, a, a journalist who, who was born there, Lyapanovarenka, he said that uh, it, it is his hometown and it was 100% Russian speaking. So uh, essentially what is happening is that uh, Putin is uh, uh, fighting his own people. And I mean, from his logic, it, it, it sounds completely perverse, but he's doing it. He's, bombarding uh, streets in uh, uh, apartment blocks in streets uh, in Kharkov. And the names of the streets are Pushkin Street or Moskovsky, Moscow Prospect, Chernyshevsky Street. They're basically named after Russian uh, authors or Russian cities. Uh, I mean, it's just that they bear this Russian uh, legacy in, in Kharkov and, and other places. Uh, so it's, uh, it does feel as as complete uh, insanity from from which whichever logic. I mean, the, the the only logic I can think of really is the logic of outsourcing the domestic conflict. I mean, what what he is doing in uh, in Ukraine is basically um, showing Russians what he is going to do to to them. And um, I mean, I, I wonder if it's necessary to to explain the. Uh, the bomb Varonish mem to, to your audience, but yes, there is this um, mem in Russia uh, which has uh, the, the Russian city of Varonish in the name, and uh, and people say bomb Varonish whenever the Russian government does something that uh, well essentially boomerangs backs and hits Russians more than than uh, other countries. Yeah, I mean, in, to to summarize it. Uh, what Putin is doing now is uh, is not, uh, of course, it is a crime against Ukraine, uh, a grave crime against Ukraine, but it is a crime against Russia's own interests and against Russia as a state. Leonid, you said that history will judge if President Zelensky was right or not, but many people in the realist camp 
call for him to make uh, compromises with Putin because they say that Ukraine is essentially doomed to lose or encounter more civilian casualties, more destruction, like Putin is not going to stop. And he, he has to make uh, concessions to Putin in some shape or form. So w what do you think uh, Putin would accept from Zelensky to stop this war and return to some sort of status quo? I think we are now at the stage when um, both sides in the conflict have reasons not to see peace um, immediately. And that's, that's because the outcome of the fighting is, is unclear. There is a sense in Ukraine and in the West that, uh, uh, that the Russian invasion is not going to plan, uh, that uh, Ukrainian resistance has been uh, pretty efficient so far, that the way the Ukrainians fight, uh, but by essentially applying uh, guerrilla tactics, uh, not forming a front line, not, not fighting a trench war, but uh, letting the Russians uh, Uh, go into into the Ukrainian territory and then um, hit their supply lines, uh, hit uh, their uh, convoys of uh, hardware and uh, armored vehicles. So that's that's proving really efficient. Uh, even if we discount uh, Ukrainian military propaganda, which of course is increasing the um, number of casualties on the enemy sides, the number of tanks and uh, and, and other hardware they have captured, but uh, it, it does uh, seem successful. The um, a full encirclement of uh, Kiev or even Kharkov uh, is not uh, happening, not at least right now. Uh, the um, the two largest city in Ukraine, uh, the two largest cities in Ukraine, they've managed to 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 remain connected to to the rest of the Ukrainian territory, and uh, they they draw the the largest amounts of of uh, Russian troops, which which are trying to attack them. So. Yeah, uh, basically, we don't know how 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 many resources uh, are there at Putin's disposal. What we know is that, uh, again, maybe quite unexpectedly for many, the Western sanctions uh, have been well, really, uh, really painful, extremely painful for Russia and for the population of Russia. It will take some days or uh, weeks or maybe a couple of months for for this whole situation to sink in. But uh, the changes in Russia are uh, drastic or maybe even catastrophic. And nobody knows it better than uh, Putin and, uh, well, maybe not Putin, but his, his government, people who are uh, in charge of the uh, economy. And uh, I'm sure they're ringing alarm bells uh, right now as much as they can. The, the central bank and, uh, and the prime minister, um, Prime Minister Mishustin. Uh, so... Yes, uh, there is um, there is a good reason for Zelensky not to uh, agree uh, to to anything that uh, that could be considered as as, as surrender as defeat uh, for Ukraine because um, who knows there is there might be a change that we are past the watershed and then Ukrainians could be able to counterattack and and maybe oust uh, the Russians from at least part of the territory but for Russians uh, it's it's kind of the same it's it's uh, psychological I mean obviously it's not going to plan but uh, of course they're, they're trying to to improve it they're trying to to do it better they have uh, tangible achievements there is now the corridor to Crimea, there is now the water supplies uh, 
uh, available to to Crimea from from the Dnipro. So that problem is solved. A large uh, swathes of Lugansk and Donetsk region t- territories in Lugansk and Donetsk regions that were under Ukrainian control. Uh, they are uh, now under the control of the Russians or the separatists. So they, they have achieved something, definitely. And there is, there is, uh, they, they definitely want to develop it. And uh, they, they believe that uh, maybe they, can, they, they would be able to uh, deprive Ukraine of resources. What they're doing now, as we can see, I mean, it's, it's definitely war crime, uh, as, as far as I'm concerned, but they are targeting specifically fuel depots. So not just uh, the, the Ukrainian army, but also ordinary people didn't have fuel to, to transport themselves and uh, to transport goods and, uh, and military equipment. They, uh, in the case of uh, Mykolaiv, they were also targeting food stores. And that's, that's, uh, that's even, even worse. Uh, but um, in, in military terms, that could be inefficient uh, tactics. So I think what is happening now is both sides have decided to to wait and see how it goes and uh, not not to to agree to something that that could be inferior compared to what they can achieve. So speaking of this, Mr. Rogozin, I'm just curious, what in your opinion would a Russian victory mean? Like, what is the what is sort of the victory conditions for the Russian regime right now? Is it just, you know, the installation of a sort of guaranteed friendly government? Is it a actual occupation? I mean, what you know, what's the what's the end goal? What what does victory mean? What would victory mean for the Russian state at this point? Oh, yeah, that's that's the thing. There are Russian interests, even even from uh, the Putin's regime standpoint. There are Russian interests that you can describe. But then uh, uh, now we are dealing with the definite irrationality, if not madness. It's, it's hard. To, it's very hard to say what is uh, what is uh, Putin's uh, interests. Uh, in, in psychological uh, terms, the, the only way I can describe it is that I think he generally wanted Ukraine to succumb to the Russian uh, interpretation of Minsk agreements, uh, and and probably if if Ukraine did, so he won't go much much further than that, and he would. Uh, consider it victory, he would declare it victory, and so that, that would be it. But uh, with uh, the build-up of uh, escalation, there is this, uh, I guess, um, 1990s St. Petersburg gangster psychology that is, uh, uh, that is at play, whether with each uh, turn of the screw, with each turn in the escalation, you double down. And it's not like double in Putin's case or in, uh, in, in the case of uh, gangsters of the 1990s. But you multiply it by, by a factor of 10 or 20. So, uh, so you, to your rival, each, each time with each move, you show that you, you want more. And that's, that's the logic of, of them increasing and increasing their demands uh, to, to Ukraine. Well, Ukraine is kind of uh, mirrors that because top officials are already talking about, you know, defeating Russia and reparations and so on. Uh, that uh, might be good for the morale in Ukraine, but uh, it does uh, sound a bit uh, far-fetched uh, for the time being. Leonid, and with the benefit of hindsight, maybe implementing the Minsk agreements was not so bad for Ukraine and Zelensky to do 
versus what we're seeing now? Because you say that Putin would put, pull back the troops uh, from the border if Zelensky went through with the implementation. And remember that when Zelensky came in 2019 to the presidential office, he said that I will sacrifice my presidential ratings, my career. I'm only here for one term, five years. So I will do whatever is necessary to stop war and bring peace to Ukraine. And didn't seem like he was actually on this peace track. He appealed to NATO almost right away in the Axios uh, interview in January 2021, as soon as Biden came into office. And overall, he was not he was not succumbing to the Russian interpretation of Minsk agreements, which could potentially bring peace and stability to Ukraine in some form. Well, look, it's uh, uh, it's a tough question, and uh, I think the the answer will come when uh, historians will be able to read uh, the the minutes of uh, various sessions and various conversations which happened within the Kremlin uh, at uh, Bankova in uh, Kiev, uh, and also between uh, Zelensky and his uh, American counterparts. Uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, on the on the one hand, uh, yes, it's, it's it's quite possible that. Uh, that implementing Minsk agreements could have brought uh, lasting peace because it uh, it would allow would have allowed uh, Putin to to end uh, the uh, historical cycle which he started in 2014, to end it uh, victoriously from his viewpoint, and um, and get Russia out of uh, international isolation. The the level of international isolation we had after 2014 to to turn this that page and and maybe maybe. As, as many speculated, uh, it would allow him to go into retirement and uh, feel safe in, in his own country and just let, let some, some other guy rule after him. I mean, that didn't happen. It is also a possibility, and we don't know because we, we don't have a fly on the wall in Putin's office. He had this plan of occupying Ukraine all along, and uh, everything else was just uh, cheating, and it was, it was for the public. But uh, the plan uh, all along has been to... Uh, to invade Ukraine and uh, subjugate it. We will not know it uh, for some time, at least. I guess after after what happened on the 24th of February, after after the, the invasion, everything that happened before becomes modern history, essentially. And it's, it's less for journalists uh, and more for historians to, to judge on that. So I'd like to briefly turn the conversation to the slightly larger context. So one of the most uh, compelling uh, bits in that Al Jazeera article of yours, I found to be the section on questioning Washington's approach to Russia. So I'd like to talk about that a little bit. Mr. Agozin, could you maybe lay the groundwork of, you know, sort of U.S.-Russia relations since the fall of the Soviet Union, the 90s, and sort of how we how we got to where we are today, right? Because a lot of the rhetoric from the Russian government has to do with NATO expansion, alleged broken agreements, uh, sort of general treatment, I guess, of the United States uh, to Russia. So if you can speak on any of this sort of contextual, I think our listeners would appreciate it. Uh, yes, yes, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously myself a, a child of 1991 and the, the Democratic Revolution in Russia in 1991. Uh, I, I took uh, took part in uh, defending the White House and uh, the, the Russian White House when, when Yeltsin stood up against the military coup in Moscow. So, yeah, I do remember the, the kind of Russia where an immense, a huge rally, possibly the, the largest rally in the history of Russia, ever was in support of Baltic independence and where the enthusiasm about integrating with the West was absolutely immense and the popularity of the United States uh, 
that the Western countries, it, it was well, as big as Putin's popularity after he invaded Crimea, it was, um, I don't remember the exact figures, but it was something like 70-80% who were positive about the United States and about, about us being allies with the United States. So, yeah, there was a, a golden uh, opportunity for, for the West to get this very complicated country with its huge nuclear arsenal to, to work and integrate it into, into the broader West. Unfortunately, the, um, it's not so much a decision, but uh, sort of uh, ad, hoc, uh, ad hoc practice uh, in the 1990s, the, 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 the common approach of, of uh, the collective West was that um, rather than, uh, rather than uh, focusing on uh, integrating Russia first as the, as the most complicated country, the, the focus was on uh, uh, slicing, uh, slicing bits of, uh, of former Soviet-controlled space, uh, starting with Central European countries that were part of the Socialist bloc, and then uh, gradually uh, going into the former Soviet territory with uh, the expansion of the European Union and um, uh, NATO. And of course, that was, that was good for, for the countries involved, but uh, it, it created uh, this, this tension. First of all, the security tension, because Russia still had the army, Russia still had those generals who were thinking as military people do. If um, other, if a military alliance, especially if the largest military alliance in the world is approaching your borders, you kind of you become nervous and uh, the NATO can uh, say a million times that it is a peaceful alliance or uh, it is it is not uh, being aggressive towards Russia and it might be true right now uh, but uh, things change in 2016 uh, the United States of America elected uh, an absolutely unhinged person as, as the president who happened to be friendly to Vladimir Putin and uh, kind of friendly to Russia uh, but uh, he could have just as well been, uh, you know, uh, unfriendly and, and wanting to, uh, to, to start a war with Russia. So they, 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 don't, uh, they don't take those uh, things for granted. They, they actually want guarantees. That, that's, that's one part of the things. The other part is that uh, when, when countries like when Baltic countries entered um, European Union and NATO, uh, immediately hard borders emerged. Uh, separating families, uh, separating uh, uh, thousands and eventually millions of people from each other because uh, part of the family lives in Russia, part of the family lives in those countries. If, uh, if Ukraine became a member of NATO or a member of European Union, uh, that, that would as well mean a hard border. And, uh, and then we would be talking about uh, dozens of millions uh, being separated. I mean, uh, Misha could say how many how many people in a place like Dnipro would have uh, close relatives in, in Russia and uh, uh, some kind of uh, Russian histories, Russian friends in, in their families. We, we are talking about um, uh, separating Siamese twins. I mean, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's just like crazy dangerous surgery <laughs> and a crazy... Uh, crazy social experiment that um, the West and the United States were undertaking in the former Soviet Union 
Uh, and it doesn't help that uh, we're talking uh, about uh, extremely confused, uh, disoriented societies in both Russia and Ukraine, which came out of the totalitarian prison. They immediately found themselves in a really insecure world of wild capitalism of the 1990s. It was, was very, I mean, these this people are victims of genocide of the 20th century. Half of the 20th century was for them sheer genocide. The other half was this bleak existence in the in the socialist barracks, uh, and uh, and then they getting out of this uh, totalitarian sect, they were uh, re-traumatized uh, again, and uh, nobody nobody takes that into account. Uh, so, in a way, uh, what what grew in in Russia, the Putin's regime, it's uh, it's in many ways the West's own uh, Frankenstein, uh, and uh, and that's because. Russians even more than Ukrainians back in the 1990s. If I take you back to the 1990s, early 1990s, then you had Ukraine and Belarus, which essentially voted for restoring the Soviet Union when Ukraine uh, elected uh, Kuchma and Belarus elected Lukashenko. And both essentially ran on the platform of restoring the Soviet Union. But Russia remained sort of stubbornly pro-Western at that time and uh, did not go along with, uh, with uh, Ukraine and Belarus, which at that time were ripe for uh, reintegration with Russia. Russia sort of um, remains uh, on its own and, and uh, democratic. But um, it's uh, just just an extremely confused society. And uh, uh, what, what, happened, what happened next, what happened in the next uh, 10, 20, 30 years, uh, I'm not sure it could have been predicted, but uh, uh, it happened because uh, the West was not the adult in the room. The, uh, the West uh, was expected by Russians especially to to be the uh, to be the guide you know to, to be somebody who is who is uh, who'll be explaining things and helping but um, the West just uh, you know decided that Russia is, is finished you know there's there's this uh, famous uh, cover of the Atlantic magazine which basically has this words uh, Russia is finished so that cover is uh, from uh, the year 2001 well you know what happened after the year 2001. Uh, so yeah, but uh, that, that attitude uh, really played a big role in, in, what, in what happened later. Leonid, I wanted to shift to the current situation and the Western response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Do you think that any of the things uh, that the West is doing right now or did before the invasion, such as supplying javelin weapons to Ukraine, some some other kind of weaponry, maybe uh, arms, guns. Uh, is it correct for the West to do this to kind of help fuel this war? Because essentially it uh, protracts this war and just causes Russia to be even more irritated at the Ukrainian resistance, which is mainly because of uh, Western uh, equipment, uh, Western ammunition, um, and just causes Russia to to, to bomb the civilian residential areas in the cities. So this invasion becomes a like humanitarian catastrophe like we see in Mariupol, like we saw in Volnavaka, and we will see in other cities, I'm sure. So do you think the West did the right thing? And what should the West do now from your standpoint? Uh, well, I'm, I mean, I'm sure the, the Russians were seeing it as a, as a provocation and uh, escalation by the West. To which extent it um, contributed to 
Putin's decision to invade, I'm not sure. Maybe Bayraktars um, contributed more to it because of their role in um, in the Azeri defeat of Armenia uh, back in 2020. Uh, maybe maybe javelins as well. Uh, on the other hand, of course, we we can see that. Uh, uh, the javelins, they, they do help Ukraine a lot now. The javelins are one of the reasons why the Ukrainian forces are um, defending um, efficiently and fighting efficiently against those tanks. And it, uh, along with the Bayraktars, along with the drones, it turns out that um, uh, these these two weapons, so these two kinds of weapons supplied by NATO uh, allies, they have um, in- increased their... Ukrainian capacity quite quite immensely. So I mean, uh, again, we we are yet to see what uh, which words were said in, in different offices in Moscow, Kiev, and, and Washington in the uh, in the prelude uh, to to this uh, to this invasion. We don't know what what really prompted Putin to invade and uh, and uh, to to which uh, to which extent the the West and Ukraine made errors or sort of uh, somehow played into Putin's hands or or triggered his uh, paranoid mind. Uh, obviously, the, the the main villain here, the, the person who is killing Ukrainians, is, is Putin and and the Russian Federation. It is a secondary, but it is an important question, of course, as, as you as you put it, uh, uh, whether whether the the West and whether specifically the United States uh, is is responsible for Putin getting into this, uh, shifting into this mode, shifting into this murderous mode, whether there was there was a way to to restrain him or uh, stop him uh, on the brink. Uh, maybe there was, and uh, I believe there was. What, what influenced uh, Zelensky, I suppose, uh, what we need to look uh, into very attentively is uh, Alexei Honcheruk's um, mission in the United States during 2020, the, the former prime minister who, after quitting his post, he essentially resettled into the United States and he was uh, mingling with uh, various officials and particularly mingling with uh, Biden campaign, Biden's campaign and Biden's uh, team throughout uh, 2020. And then... Uh, uh, in the the early um, uh, 2021, we saw uh, a, a very radical shift in uh, Zelensky's stance on on Russia, and uh, Zelensky, from uh, a, a doubt he had been, he has he, he turned into into this hole. So you could see a very um, definite in, in those um, in those interviews and in those um, publications in uh, January February 2021. Uh, you could see a definite input from the Atlantic Council, the, the American think tank, uh, with which um, Alexei Gonchuk turned out to be associated, uh, and and which uh, in March uh, uh, 2021, three three weeks before the beginning of Russian invasion, it uh, published uh, a strategy for Biden in Ukraine, which was a very sort of radical strategy and escalatory strategy that. Uh, was 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 bound to make make Putin uh, quite angry. I mean, it doesn't uh, it can it doesn't justify Putin uh, whatever he has done. But um, I, I have a feeling that uh, that for for a part of the American establishment, for uh, some of the think tankers, uh, they, this war is is a is a good outcome essentially. It uh, it proves uh, everything they have been saying all those years that Putin is, is a murderer that uh, he, he will do it for whatever we try we shouldn't appease him we just should fight him 
So, so they are they are now in a triumphant uh, mood. Mood. They've uh, they've proved to be right. But um, uh, you could uh, argue that it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. One of the most potentially bewildering pieces of rhetoric that's come out of the Kremlin in justification of this war has been that what the Russian Federation is doing is a denazification of Ukraine. I, I just want to hear your thoughts on that generally. I mean, is, do, do these sort of claims from the Russian Federation have any sort of correspondence to reality? I mean, what, what what's going on there? Well, yeah, there, there, I mean, there, there are two sides of it in, in this issue. One is uh, the, the Russian side. When they say denazification, uh, they uh, actually claim that uh, Ukraine is being ruled by Nazis and that the Nazis uh, are playing the, the major role in, uh, in in Ukraine. And if you, uh, as I was in Moscow a week ago, and I was watching the uh, television news, uh, they don't even say they're fighting the Ukrainian army. They say they're fighting the nationalists, they're fighting the Nazis. The Ukrainian army is somewhere in the background. The Ukrainian army is uh, someone who's, uh, who are not, not willing to fight. It's only those uh, ideological regiments and battalions that are fighting against well, well, the And this is exactly what they're saying about Mariupol right now, right? It's not the Ukrainian army in there, it's Azov holding down, it's so on and so forth. So, right, so right. On, on the one hand, uh, there is uh, a very clear distortion of reality by, by Russian propaganda. Yes, Russia is fighting the actual Ukrainian army, and increasingly it's, it's fighting uh, the uh, civilians in Ukraine, and mostly Russian-speaking civil, uh, civilians uh, in, in, uh, in the east of Ukraine. So that's, uh, that's one side of things. The other side of things is that uh, Nazis do exist in Ukraine, and, uh, and this, um, the, the story of, um, uh, of, of the far-right uh, uh, far-right groups and um, uh, far-right paramilitaries. It, it's not been. Uh, it hasn't been. It hasn't received sufficient attention in the West uh, all through through those years. People usually dismiss it by saying that uh, only two percent uh, of voters voted for the far-right parties. But that dismisses the uh, the scope of infiltration of the far right and also the far right rhetorics in uh, in the Ukrainian mainstream. How how often this these people who represent only two percent of the population? How often they appear on television on all uh, television channels? Uh, how they shape and frame the narrative in in Ukraine? And so then there are those uh, paramilitary groups and military groups uh, like Azov. Uh, which is essentially a powerful private army, largely outside uh, the, the Ukrainian military system. Like they have their own surgeon school, which is just not a part of for Ukrainian military educational system. It's it's their own. D didn't Azov get didn't Azov get integrated into the National Guard after well, yeah, 2014? For, formally, formally, but uh, it has a very large uh, level of uh, autonomy. The far right personalities still play a leading role. And uh, the um, connection to the political wing of Azov movement to the national courts is just obvious. It's obvious from uh, all the um, output. So, yeah, I mean, the, the existence of these uh, pirate groups, uh, it plays into Putin's hands. It plays into the hands of Putin's propaganda. And when they, when they say they're fighting uh, Nazis in Mariupol, 
Well, Azov is there. Azov is, is in Mariupol, and Mariupol is, is Azov's uh, main base. And so much of the information, uh, including valuable information uh, about the scope of destruction and the civilian casualties, uh, now it does come from, from Azov, from this, you know, very, very dubious, dubious source. I mean, I'm, I'm not putting in doubt to things they're saying now. It's, it's very obvious that uh, it's, it's a matter of humanitarian catastrophe in, in Mariupol and that uh, the, the Russians are basically destroying, uh, destroying the city and uh, killing in, uh, civilians indiscriminately. But uh, yes, Nazis do exist and uh, they, are, they were a part of the equation. They are important uh, for that they are a pillar of uh, Russian propagandist effort. So, I mean, it's, it's just uh, people, I guess, need to understand this, this complex uh, picture. And it's, it's not about both sides, and it's just about understanding what the reality on the ground really is. And maybe to wrap up our conversation, how does Putin break out of this military stalemate, this uh, situation overall on the front line? Do you think uh, there is a chance of him using chemical weapons or tactical nuclear missiles, maybe not in like densely populated areas, but sort of like as a psychological weapon of sorts? Because right now he's playing a game of will Ukraine collapse, uh, will Russia collapse, or will Russian mothers come out to the streets? So like it's it's like a race between all of those things, and right now it just it just doesn't seem like Ukraine is collapsing, or at least like the morale of Ukrainian troops is collapsing. But their uh, but their military invasion has stalled on many fronts, and I just don't see how he is going to back off of this. And the Western off ramp that everybody keeps talking about, he might not even take it because because he is so far into this process. What are your thoughts about this? Yeah, I mean, with, with military uh, conflicts, um, uh, very often military conflicts um, just uh, exhaust their capacity. They um, stop because they kind of die of natural causes when both uh, armies uh, cannot move any further and uh, there, is no, there is no resources. And then uh, so some kind of uh, stabil- stability, some kind of equilibrium emerges as a result of, uh, of those hostilities. Um, I guess we we're still quite far now from from that stage, um, and so the, the Ukrainians are quite obviously willing to fight. Not much is being said about uh, uh, where the Ukrainian troops are and how many there are. So everything everybody's focusing on the Russian troops, understandably. And I'm no military expert. I I, can, I cannot say uh, how much. Uh, there is left for for the Ukrainians for the Ukrainian resistance. And again, the um, the guerrilla tactics they have adopted it is it is quite efficient. You can you can maintain a guerrilla war for for quite a long time, especially with a pretty much hundred percent sympathetic population. On Putin's side, uh, yeah, again, unclear how many resources he has. But the the ultimate question is is uh, his the level of his irrationality, uh, the level of his uh, insanity. Uh, when he did, uh, when he uh, annexed Crimea, and when he started the war in Donbass in 2014, of course I was shocked. And again, I, I couldn't predict uh, this this would be happening. And uh, one of my reactions was uh, an op-ed which was titled uh, "Yes, he can." In terms of now that he has uh, done it, uh, he can go further. He can, yes, he can attack the rest of Ukraine. Yes, he can uh, attack the Baltics and so on. 
So uh, I had that opinion in, back in 2014, but I was it gradually, I gradually changed it because uh, eight years passed after 2014 and so he wasn't doing it. Uh, while Ukraine was building up defenses and, uh, and also building up uh, its, uh, its propaganda effort and convincing people in this of Ukraine that, uh, they, they, sh- that sh- they should stick with, U- with Ukraine and that uh, becoming uh, Donetsk or Lugansk Republic uh, is, is not uh, an option for them. Uh, but uh, the, the billion-dollar question now is, is whether Putin is, is suicidal. And there's a few signs that are quite unfortunate, uh, like uh, his statement that the vote uh, without Russia makes no sense. And, uh, and of course, by Russia at this stage, and, and his uh, personal emotional development, I think by Russia he means himself, his Russia. I'm not sure he's, he's concerned so much about all those people in Russia. He's concerned about, about himself. He, he's, to himself, he's synonymous with Russia. Perhaps... Uh, uh, if he's if he's going to die or he he's going to to lose everything, then um, everything around him can could, could die as well. That might be his uh, sort of uh, suicidal line of thinking. So we don't know. I really hope that uh, Biden administration is employing uh, really good psychiatrists and uh, psychologists uh, who are sitting together with the generals and uh, uh, and. Um, make an, uh, at least uh, provide an input uh, for, for decision makers. Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in the program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. 